You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, this is Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and thanks for joining me today for a dermatology podcast. My speaker today is Dr. Jim Treat, who is an attending physician in the Division of Dermatology. We're going to be talking today a a little bit about a potpourri of dermatology topics and try to cover some of the things that we see the most in primary care. So one of the first things I wanted to talk about was eczema, which obviously is probably what we see the most of. So there's so many steroid options out there and in each class, and I've heard you say before that I should pick a few and stick with them so that I know what I'm using and get comfortable with them. So where should I start? What I've done is take our local Medicaids uh, and basically say, what do they cover? Because if they cover it, most likely the insurances um, that uh, other that people have will also cover them. Great. And then uh, essentially you have medications. Um, essentially what you want to do is pick one in each class, but there are seven classes. And yeah. in children, we really don't use class one steroids. That's the strongest thing Right. Um, almost ever. Uh, so I think if you pick one from class seven, five, and three, it's very mm-hmm. reasonable. And so just to say that out loud, I generally use two and a half percent hydrocortisone as my low potency steroid. Mm-hmm. I generally use trimcinolone 025 percent ointment mm-hmm. as like a little step up, and trimcinolone zero point one percent ointment is a significant step up. And honestly, that's two names, and then mm-hmm. you can actually treat basically everyone. Right. With, you know. Um, some slight exceptions, but that Great. catches probably 80 or 90% of the patients, which just makes it way easier. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Fewer names to remember is always better. Yeah, exactly. And there's no real, there are very few exceptions where using a um, uh, branded or very specific steroid mm-hmm. are uh, kind of necessary, barring allergies or things like that. Mm-hmm. Great. Many parents uh, tell me in clinic that their child's eczema flares with certain foods. Is there any evidence that there's a link there? So what I try to tell people is that eczema, the main problem is that um, kids with eczema have a barrier problem. They are basically born with a genetic change that makes it so that their skin is missing the kind of cholesterol ceramide barrier that's on the outside. It's Mm kind of like you're missing the icing on top of your cake. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you want to kind of redo that barrier. And then that leads to a lot of inflammation. So the inflammation happens... Um, from lots of potentially different things, so irritation of the skin, potentially allergies on top of the skin, um, and then there's a small chance that an allergen that you ingest can at least lead to itching, mm-hmm. and once you scratch, you then right. break your skin barrier more, which then leads to more inflammation. Right. So I don't know that you can eat a food and actually have eczema pop out very mm-hmm. easily. That's an uncommon event because mm-hmm. usually foods are going to lead to hives mm-hmm. and not actually eczema. Um, but it is reasonable to think that if you ate a food and it made you very itchy and you scratched that you could make your eczema worse. worse. Got so it. I think foods, among the things that are associated with eczema, foods are pretty low on the list mm-hmm. um, unless you're eating foods that are making you extremely itchy. One of the exceptions to that is milk protein allergies where mm-hmm. you have bloody diarrhea mm-hmm. and you um, have a widespread rash, and that certainly um, can happen, but that's uh, 
um, parents want to, you know, have their kid be allergic to some very specific food and stop that food and have the eczema go away. Right, that would be nice. That would be very nice. Okay. Great. And while we're talking about the little kids, so it, allergy has now told us that in the kids um, in four to six months age range, we should be giving them peanuts. But the high risk group is the kids with the moderate to severe eczema. So we're trying to be very proactive about treating eczema in these young infants less than six months old. But at the same time, some people are a little cautious about using the big gun steroids in the less than six month um, range. So what are some tips in that? early infancy period to managing their eczema. Yeah, so almost everything's off-label, so you have mm -hmm. to kind of go by experience and um, what people clinically have to do, because mm -hmm. you have to treat people even when you don't have an on-label medication, because right. they still have a, a disease. Right. So um, what we generally try to do is use the lowest potency steroid that we can. Uh, I think using 2.5% hydrocortisone in children who are um, mm -hmm. two, three to six months old is um, reasonable. Mm -hmm. What you don't want to do them is, is give them a huge amount of medication and tell them not to follow up so right. you want to like <laughs> give them a reasonable amount that's going to treat their flare for a week or two and then try to get them down to maintenance amounts of medication mm -hmm. where they're only using it a couple times a week and then um, that's much less likely to lead to any uh, adrenal suppression um, and you can use you know steroids that are a little bit higher than that for short periods of time if you really need to mm -hmm. um, but you want to make sure they're doing an amazing job with moisturizing gentle mm -hmm. cleansing and all the other kind of atopic skincare that's mm -hmm. going to help them not need as much steroid right. um, but using for short periods of time if you think about you know croup mm -hmm. people get significant right. steroids for short right. periods of time and they do okay with that and that's an ingested steroid mm -hmm. so topical steroids for short periods of time should be pretty reasonable as long as you um, are treating something that you have to treat great that sounds good let's switch a little bit to some congenital skin lesions so when should we refer children with non-vascular congenital skin lesions things like nevus sebaceous or large congenital nevi yeah, I think there are two ways of thinking about that. One is that the parents will probably want to know a lot more information about them because there's mm -hmm. all this kind of um, misinformation or um, uh, difficult to interpret information about mm -hmm. what the actual malignancy risk is with those. Right. So if you have a nevus sebaceous, it used to be said that those have a malignancy risk that's 15 or 20 percent or some mm -hmm. really high number. Most of those things that have grown within nevus sebaceous have actually been recategorized as non-cancers. Mm. They're growths and right. they should be removed, but they're not actually cancers. Mm. Um, and the genetic mutation for nevus sebaceous actually was figured out in the last couple of years as it was for um, large congenital nevi. Mm -hmm. So we now kind of can quantify the risk a little bit more. Yeah. The risk for both things is fairly low. So mm -hmm. to answer the question, mm -hmm. I think most parents like to have the conversation at least once that says, the risk is fairly low, you're welcome to remove them if it's feasible and mm -hmm. the risk of removing it is not super high, you're also welcome to follow them as long as they're not growing or changing. Mm -hmm. The second way of answering the question is, if anything changes, they should be referred right away. Right. If you have a growth inside of it, if there's a color change, mm -hmm. this is true for nevus sebaceous and, and regular melanocytic nevi. Right. If something changes about it, they should be seen right away. Or if you look at it from the beginning and you're like, this is not completely uniform, it's hard mm -hmm. to follow, I can't quite tell what's what, mm -hmm. absolutely refer them. Right, great. Um, but, you know, so I think that what is the onus is on us from a dermatology standpoint also to look at someone's normal mole at you know that's maybe a centimeter or two and say you, know, you probably don't need to follow up every year but mm -hmm. why don't you follow up with your pediatrician and follow up with us every once in a while mm -hmm. um, or if anything is changing and mm -hmm. I think that um, makes it so that we don't overuse the medical system mm -hmm. um, for something that's fairly low risk. Great and I think during my my short career anyway we've 
become more comfortable with managing hemangiomas in primary care, mm -hmm. but I know that there are still many that we should be referring to derms, so when should we refer them? Is it based on size or location or number? Yeah, all of those things. Mm -hmm. So location is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. You can put a five millimeter hemangioma in the airway or the nose or the eyelid of a child, that's mm -hmm. a huge deal. And yeah. you can put a two centimeter hemangioma on a leg, that's not a huge deal. Right. Um, so location really makes the biggest difference. So. Um, anything on the face or in the groin, because mm -hmm. um, in the perineum you worry about them ulcerating, mm -hmm. and, um, especially right. if they're being pooped and peed on all the time, the yep. ulceration can really get severe. Um, it's reasonable to think about preferring them if they're causing any problems. Mm -hmm. On the face, I feel like parents should be offered therapy. Mm -hmm. It does not mean you need to treat all the hemangiomas on the face, but right. if you have a hemangioma that's a dime size on the center part of the cheek or the mm -hmm. center part of the forehead, mm -hmm. it's not probably going to leave behind completely normal skin, mm -hmm. and it matters more on the cheek and the forehead. So mm -hmm. even if it's just, you know, being treated to right. kind of prevent social issues future in the future, mm -hmm. um, the earlier we can treat them, the better. We now have multiple options. I mean, mm -hmm. topical Timolol, which again mm -hmm. is off-label, um, is very effective for superficial hemangiomas. Mm -hmm. Propranolol is on-label for children who are full-term and are over five weeks of age, mm -hmm. and that's very powerful. There's almost nothing that's on-label in yeah. five-week-olds. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that uh, is used for really significant hemangiomas, mm -hmm. but it's nice to, for the parents to know why or why not we would or wouldn't use one of those medicines. Right. And sometimes we don't treat them, but um, I think it's important for parents to know why we don't need to treat them because mm -hmm. you know if a hemangioma is going to do really well and go mm -hmm. away on its own and leave behind normal skin, that's great. But a lot of the ones that have like a mushroom cap look to them. Mm -hmm. So if they have a gentle slope when they go mm -hmm. up, then the body's really good at making that go back to normal. Mm. If you have a hemangioma that comes out and then forms like a mushroom cap, the body's not gonna make all that skin go back to normal. There's mm. just too much extra skin sitting on top. So those are reasonable to refer to kind of have parents, you know, accept or decline therapy mm -hmm. depending on where it is and what it's doing. Mm -hmm. So mandatory referrals, airway, eyelid, nose, lip, because um, mm -hmm. those almost always mm -hmm. have to be treated. Um, uh, bigger the size, the more likely they need to be referred. Anything segmental that looks mm -hmm. like it's growing in a pattern. Mm -hmm. So if you have a patterned, um, people call them dermatomal, they're not right. actually dermatomes, but you could think about it the same way. Right. Dermatomal on the face, dermatomal mm -hmm. in the perineum, mm -hmm. those should be referred because there are syndromes associated with those hemangiomas. Great. And then last one, sorry, um, yeah. hemangiomas are my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, lumbosacral hemangiomas uh -huh. um, can be right. highly associated with spinal cord tethering. Yes. It's very important to make sure that those are evaluated and mm -hmm. Um, kind of the risk is assessed as to as mm -hmm. to whether they are associated or not. Great. And if they are, say, in, in non-cosmetic places, maybe the trunk or the buttocks or something, the parent says, I don't really care about these, but there's more than one. Do we worry if there's two or three? So two or three, no, mm -hmm. um, but five, yes. Yeah. And that's arbitrary. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, five is the cutoff that somebody decided to say, hey, mm -hmm. you're more likely to have them in the liver. Yeah. But if you see someone with two or three or four hemangiomas, it's pretty easy to feel the liver. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't feel a big liver, the chances that you have something there that's abnormal are very small. Mm -hmm. But if you have more than five hemangiomas, most of us will standardly do an ultrasound of the liver mm -hmm. in the little kids, like the check. four week old, six week old, just to make sure we're not, you know, mm -hmm. something's not brewing. Great, good to know. So for kids with lots of nevi, we kind of talked a little bit about this already, but what age should we start referring them for routine skin checks? Yeah, it actually depends a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, if someone's 
this almost never happens, but if someone's actually born mm -hmm. day one mm -hmm. with a bunch of nevi, that patient should be referred mm -hmm. right away because right. there is a chance that developmentally some of those nevi ended up somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, so the mole cells, uh, the cells that form your skin, form your brain and your spinal cord also. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can have mole cells that are in the CNS if you are born with moles. Mm -hmm. Now what most people say, like if you ask the parent, they're like, oh, they've had it forever. What they really mean is the child was one or two years old. Right. And that's fine. Right. But like if day one they have multiple nevi, they should actually be referred. Great. Um, the other scenario is usually the 10, 12 year old who mm -hmm. has a bunch of moles. Um, if you have a family history of melanoma, if the moles all look a little irregular or just mm -hmm. don't look like each other, mm -hmm. if you're getting kind of more and more of them over time and they're hard to follow, then mm -hmm. they should be referred mm -hmm. um, in order to make sure that, that you know we're keeping track of their risk of melanoma. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the risk of melanoma under puberty is very low, mm -hmm. but the way those kids actually form melanoma, very, very uncommon, is as amelanotic lesions. Mm -hmm. They look like pink, red, bumps that kind of rapidly grow mm -hmm. um, and that's scary because yeah. lots of things look like pig brain right. bumps. Um, but if you see something and you just don't recognize it in the skin and mm -hmm. you think that it looks unusual, mm -hmm. then have them seen. Yeah. Um, and then last thing would be, um, if again, if you have someone with a strong family history, People have a mole signature, so their mm -hmm. moles should look like each other. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, someone has a little bit lighter skin and may make pinker moles, and someone has a little bit darker skin may make darker brown or black moles. Mm -hmm. And that's okay as long as all of them look like each other and they kind of look like they belong in the patient. Okay. Um, but if you have a mole that's uh, the one that doesn't look like all the other mm -hmm. ones, um, then that is important to evaluate also. I like that mole signature. I've never heard that before. Yeah. 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 Great. Let's switch gears a little bit to acne. So. There are a lot of different treatments out there and more of them being over the counter, which is great too. Um, we sometimes all have our own go-tos, just like we do with the steroids. Should we take a multi-pronged approach and do a little um, Retin-A, a little benzoyl peroxide, or should we pick one thing and try that before we move up a level to the so, next? So I think there are a few things to recognize. Yeah. Um, one is that people generally are scared of Retin-A because of pregnancy class. Mm -hmm. um, tretinoin is pregnancy class C, benzoyl mm -hmm. peroxide is pregnancy class C. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, um, if you look at what they do, benzoyl peroxide is really good at taking care of inflammatory red inflamed lesions. Mm -hmm. It's not that great at preventing new acne from coming. Right. The way acne starts is with um, blackheads and whiteheads, mm -hmm. and that is where tretinoin and adapalene are mm -hmm. um, the things that work the best. Right. The American Academy of Pediatrics did an amazing job of putting together a three um, uh, poster approach, which is mild acne, moderate acne, severe acne. Mm -hmm. And if you look on there, almost everyone is, um, gets a topical retinoid mm -hmm. as standard care. And no matter how bad your acne is. No matter is. how bad your acne is. If you mm -hmm. have very mild acne, it's very reasonable to start with benzoyl peroxide, mm -hmm. but if they come back to you two, three months later and they are not better, mm -hmm. benzoyl peroxide is basically a topical antimicrobial. Right. Adding a topical antibiotic to an antimicrobial is basically doing the same thing again right. in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. The thing that should be added is a retinoid, right. tretinoin, adapalene. That is the thing that's going to prevent acne from getting worse, mm -hmm. take care of the actual baseline problem mm -hmm. of it. Um, and the key is kind of telling people how to use them. If they go too fast with them, if they you know take the tube and glob it on their mm -hmm. face and do it every day, they're going to get red and irritated. Mm -hmm. um, creams are much less irritating, although mm -hmm. a little less potent, but mm -hmm. less irritating. Uh, you want to use it every other day in the beginning and then slowly build it up to every day. And mm -hmm. if kids can only tolerate it five days a week and without their skin getting red and irritated, that's fine. It'll right. still work. 
it takes two to three months to work, which for a teenager is like their entire life. Right. <laughs> so you have to be, um, you know, you might remind them to be patient. Uh -huh. But I would re I would have people reference the, a if you just do AAP acne guidelines, mm -hmm. it's a Google search. Yeah. Um, the guidelines are there. You can print them out. They're freely available. And it is a beautiful picture of exactly what you should do for different types of acne. Great. And what you'll notice is that tretinol and it, or adapalene are a part of almost every regimen. The other thing is antimicrobial stewardship. So mm -hmm. we give people antibiotics for acne. Right. That's fine if you need to. But what you don't want to do is have them be on antibiotics forever. Right. You want to have them be on antibiotics for a short period of time that allows them to get used to their tretinoin mm -hmm. and then have the tretinoin take over to, for maintaining the benefit. Mm -hmm. And that's the way to eventually get them off of antibiotics, potentially mm -hmm. off of topical antibiotics. The, the tretinoin and adapalene yeah. are really important. Yeah, great. Let's switch to just a little bit of potpourri. So we see a lot of uh, molluscum and a lot of keratosis pilaris, which we aren't bothered by, but certainly families and patients can be bothered by. And we know that these are benign and will self-resolve, but they can take a long time. And sometimes they can be in cosmetic places in the case of molluscum. So are there any tips and tricks to make them go away faster without us having to actually freeze off molluscum? Yeah, let me start with KP because it's easier. Yeah. Um, so keratosis pilaris, 20% of the population, roughly, maybe that's underestimated actually. Mm -hmm. I like to tell people that that's the way their skin was made and mm -hmm. um, there's not a whole lot we can do about it. Moisturizing is perfectly reasonable. Mm -hmm. I would not, in most children, go and try to be really aggressive mm -hmm. um, because it tends to be that the more aggressive you are trying to get the bumps to go away, the more the redness happens. Okay. Um, but it's very reasonable to say that KP can become itchy sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's not actually eczema, but right. it's a um, kind of dry skin condition that's associated with getting eczema. Mm -hmm. But if it gets itchy, give them some topical steroids for itching times, have them moisturize just like they do with eczema, mm -hmm. and then have the parent try to normalize it. Mm -hmm. um, because the more the parent makes a big deal out of it, the more the child's going to. Right. Um, and there are a lot of very famous people with keratosis pilaris on their face um, and keratosis pilaris on their their arms and their legs who um, are um, doing fine happy to have yeah. and, you know it, and it, it's really just a normal skin phenotype that, um, that a lot of the population has great well a little tougher because there's so many scenarios for it mm -hmm. um, the, the the average time to have molluscum is 18 months um, wow. so what you don't want to tell the parents is that it's never going to go away and mm -hmm. what you don't want to tell the parents is it's going to go away tomorrow right um, it's going to be there for a while if they're not bothering the child, then it's you're welcome to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. If they're itchy, eczema bring uh, sorry, molluscum brings its own eczema with it. Mm -hmm. So if they get itchy and they get a dermatitis around it, you can treat the dermatitis mm -hmm. with a very low potency steroid, mm -hmm. um, trying not to kind of treat the actual molluscum, but treat the dermatitis around it. That mm -hmm. takes the itch away, and then kids can just ignore their molluscum again. Right. Um, the other therapies for molluscum tend to be destructive, and mm -hmm. you have to be careful what parents are using um, over the counter. So, mm -hmm. for instance, apple cider vinegar or some mm -hmm. of the other kind of like irritants of the skin, mm -hmm. if they are too overzealous or they cover them, you can really get burns from those, so, mm -hmm. so they have to be very careful with those. Okay. Um, the treatments that we do in the office, some feel good and some don't, and they, they do tend to work. You know, simple things that we do, if you basically take the little core and you just pick it out with mm -hmm. a little forceps very mm -hmm. gently without, you know, causing a lot of damage to the mm -hmm. skin, um, that's a simple thing to do if, if in the office, mm -hmm. you know, sterile and, right. you know, alcohol swab, et cetera, um, uh, <coughs> that you don't need to feel like you're really hurting someone because you're basically right. just picking out the core and an older child can tolerate that. That's reasonable mm -hmm. thing that a pediatrician can do. Um, 
I try not to freeze them, but mm -hmm. if someone's an older child and they have two molluscum and they just want to be done with it, mm -hmm. then it's reasonable. You right. don't have to freeze them nearly as aggressively as you do with regular warts or right. vulgaris. Um, so you don't want to make the treatment worse than the disease. Right, definitely. You know? I think treating the HE eczematous stuff around it, it helps you get out of um, uh, the need to treat it in most people. Mm -hmm. The other thing to know is there's something called the boat sign, which is the beginning of the end. Once they okay. turn really red and angry and inflamed, mm -hmm. they are about to go away. Okay. So the, as soon as the parents get super frustrated with them and they're like, this is ridiculous and it looks awful, you can be like, yay, yeah. your immune system is helping you. That's very it's good to know. Almost done. Yep. Great. It's actually a publication if you want to print it out and give it to them. Okay, great. B O T E. Okay, sign. great. So we're going to try to link to that um, AAP article on acne, and then I, I'll find this uh, boat sign article, and we can link to that on our website too for podcast listeners. Okay, another question that we get a lot um, in the summertime is about sunblock and sunscreen. So we obviously are recommending it, but a lot of parents are worried about toxins in sunscreen, and there are lists out there that recommend safe sunscreens. So is there anything to worry about in sunscreen? Yeah, so um, it's hard to answer this question because there are so many ingredients and so many different sunscreens. Mm -hmm. The sunscreens that, that the Environmental Working Group and other places feel the most comfortable with generally are non-nanoparticle zinc um, mm -hmm. sunscreens. And that's fine. Um, your mm -hmm. child will have that kind of white um, look to the skin. Because it's just a barrier, it's right? It's a barrier. Yeah. Um, but it does a pretty good job of, of covering um, uh, rays of sun. Mm -hmm. The FDA changed what sunscreens were allowed to say a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that they could say lasts all day or waterproof. Right. And those things are not allowed to be said anymore. Mm -hmm. What they're allowed to say is water resistant up to 40 or 80 minutes. Mm -hmm. So you want to find a sunscreen that says it's water resistant up to 80 minutes. So you're mm -hmm. not putting sunscreen screen on your child a million times a day, right. you do have to remember that the most common reason for people to fail sunscreen or to get burned anyway is that they um, got out of the pool, they used mm -hmm. a towel, they wiped it right off mm -hmm. or the water wiped it off and it wasn't reapplied right. or the right amount wasn't applied to begin with. Right. Um, uh, there are recommendations on the sunscreen bottles, which are um, are made to kind of make sure that people cover enough of their child's skin. Mm -hmm. But reapplication really is the most important thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Couple of caveats. Um, inhaled. Uh, sorry. Um, aerosol. Yeah, water. Yeah, aerosol sunscreens. Um, they. They work, um, and they, they do a fine job. You have to be careful that your child's not inhaling them. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, if you're spraying it, it does have quite a um, scent to it. Yep. And if, they're, if you're spraying it enough on their face, you want to make sure they're really not breathing in at all. Mm -hmm. um, you need to make sure you're not doing it in the wind, because um, then the <laughs> beach is say, I've been down, downwind of some on the <laughs> beach before. <laughs> right, you're getting sunscreen, their child is not. Right. <laughs> um, so you want to make sure that um, the sunscreen actually made it onto the skin and mm -hmm. that it's getting rubbed in. Um, and just getting back to kind of like the pure zinc ones, mm -hmm. most of them are not water resistant to 80 minutes because right. it takes the other stuff in sunscreen to mm -hmm. help to keep it onto the skin. Um, so, uh, and then the other caveat is if kids have atopic dermatitis or eczema, mm -hmm. they tend to get um, uh, less sensitized or less irritated by zinc and titanium physical mm -hmm. walker sunscreens. Great. So we'll usually have them use sunscreens that are zinc and titanium based um, because it's less irritating. Great. 
Um, we often see contact dermatitis from herbal ingredients that, that are often found in natural and organic uh, soaps and lotions, calendula being one that I've seen most frequently in my clinic. Are there other culprits that we should be aware of, or um, is this something that you commonly see as well? Yeah, um, so I think with contact dermatitis, the goal is to use things that are as no frills as possible mm -hmm. when you're treating someone with, with atopic dermatitis, especially because mm -hmm. they have a broken skin barrier to begin with, and they're more likely to get allergic to things. Right. So um, uh, that's why we tend to use topical steroid ointments instead of creams, because mm -hmm. the creams have a lot more ingredients. We tend to use fragrance and formaldehyde-free moisturizers, mm -hmm. um, herbal things. Uh, so there is data to show that coconut oil might be good for the skin. That's mm -hmm. fine. It should just be make sure that there's not a whole lot of other stuff in it. Right. Um, uh, sunflower seed oil, safflower seed oil, etc. may have some benefit to it. Mm -hmm. Again, you want to make sure there's not a whole lot of other things in it. The more awesome it smells and the more ingredients in it, mm -hmm. the more likely you are to get a contact dermatitis to right. it. So I would try to kind of limit that, especially in children who have very irritable, you know, mm -hmm. atopic skin mm -hmm. because they're more likely to become allergic to them. So as a general rule, the things kids are most likely to become allergic to after poison ivy and nickel mm -hmm. um, are fragrances and formaldehydes. So mm -hmm. um, trying to get things that are fragrance-free uh, and trying to have things that have fewer ingredients, I think, mm -hmm. is helpful to avoid contact allergies. Great. Yeah. I w outside of the eczema kids, I also see it in the in the newborns and the very young kids. So I always tell people, your baby smells great on their own. You don't exactly. need all these extras in their soap and lotion. I agree with you. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for taking on the challenge of doing a derm talk with no visuals. <laughs> And you did a great job of that. So thanks for dispelling some myths and teaching us lots of new information. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.